Hello and welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, the show where we explore the primary scientific literature in nursing and the health sciences. Clinical Appraisal is the first and only podcast on iTunes or any other platform dedicated exclusively to exploring measurement and methodology issues in nursing research and practice. If you like what I am doing and have enjoyed the episodes so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any other reason, please feel free to email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. With that preamble aside, on today's episode, I would like to discuss with you qualitative versus quantitative research, as the title suggests. So for the few of you that are not already aware for reasons having to do with your being a nursing student or involved in nursing research to some degree or another, or another field of scientific inquiry, as not all of my listeners are in uh, nursing. If you happen to have another background and aren't aware of this already, I just want to start by discussing what exactly qualitative versus quantitative research is and what each of them entail. Just by virtue of the verbiage, you might already be able to disentangle what the differences are, but just to put it out there, qualitative research is research that explores the phenomenology and personal subjective experience of research participants. That's a very compact way to view it, and it's also perhaps a bit on the limited side, because I think qualitative research is actually a fairly expansive domain of inquiry and uh, knowledge. On the other hand, this is just to simplify it for the sake of the so-called argument for this point. Um, On the opposing side, if you will, we have quantitative research. And I will say I do think that much ado has been made about the, the purported differences between these two areas. And and of course, they're different in practice. Um, And I'll get to some of my feelings on this in a little bit. But suffice it to say, I think people draw too hard a distinction between the two areas as being um, so different from one another, that there's just no reconciling them. And I think that that it might, I think that is a bit of a naive approach to um, well, to differentiating between qualitative versus quantitative research. So uh, why so quantitative research on the opposite end is using numbers and often statistics to quantify, hence quantify, uh, quantitative research, um, to analyze a problem in such a way that, we're able to make pronouncements about the generalizability of those data to a specific problem. Now, again, that's also very vague and ambiguous and really doesn't do it justice. But again, I'm just trying to put these in two fairly simple bins, despite their individual complexity as areas of inquiry and knowledge development. So one might wonder 
then why is qualitative research conducted and why is qualitative re- quantitative research conducted and you know most of the research that's conducted in the world of academia today is quantitative in nature most everybody wants to describe how some independent variable or variables interact to influence the dependent variable of interest, whatever that happens to be, whatever their area, and everybody's looking to find some interaction effect in some capacity so that they can infer something generalizable. And in some cases, depending on someone's field of interest, they might even be trying to find some fundamental theorem that implies something wholly uh, universal for the entire scientific endeavor. Uh, That's often in areas like physics and sometimes chemistry, um, although less frequently is that type of thing discussed. Uh, Chemists tend to be very pragmatic, but also, you know, in things like evolutionary biology and uh, particularly in fields like psychology where, you know, they're trying to just figure out what's the what are some universal theorems that can apply to all of human behavior and cognition? Um, And there are plenty of people focused on those sorts of questions, but most all of them use some quantitative focus to get there, partly because you have no choice, really. I mean, you have to, in order to make broad sweeping statements, you have to be able to, you have to be able to justify your, claims with some i mean the the thing that provides you with the capacity for generalization is the appropriate statistical analysis of rigorously collected data um and that data is almost always numerical in nature no though in some respects i suppose it doesn't have to be but qualitative research then often gets sort of shunned or viewed as less rigorous. It often gets viewed as less rigorous. And uh, that's usually by individuals who've never conducted qualitative research or been involved in some mixed methods project that that includes some qualitative research um, and is, in my opinion, a a shame. And, And I say this as somebody who's very quantitatively oriented. My research interests are particularly um, quantitative methods as related to uh, nursing research. And it's always been interesting to me that there's been this false dichotomy that we can't somehow find a way to appropriately integrate these two areas of inquiry. I think that they are different, but I think they're both useful in their own respective ways as I hope to convince you of today. So the purpose of each of these methodologies, and I shouldn't say methodologies because there's a myriad methodologies within each of these two, let's say domains. So these two domains or large bins of research orientation are useful for various reasons, some of which I already laid out. But I would say one of the better ways to think about these differences is that quantitative research tends to be descriptive and inferential. You tend to be able to better describe a problem 
in a generalizable fashion and then infer based on the statistical analysis of quantitative or numerical data how these things might trend going forward, uh, particularly in our field as it relates to some intervention or other, some clinical intervention. On the other hand, qualitative work tends to be what we call exploratory. And it's exploratory in the sense that what you're doing is dealing with much more complicated, infinitely more complicated data that are not numerical. They are subjective, experiential. And your goal is to collate them in such a way that you essentially concoct an, uh, a hypothesis of what might be going on based on the phenomenology of, in, the, in our case, the patient or pa patients, really. What you end up doing, depending on the method, and there are, as I mentioned, various methodologies within this realm of qualitative research, is you explore and exhaust themes that emerge in conversation with um, the various individuals that you sample. We'll get to some of the limitations of this a bit later, but first let's talk about why they are helpful and important and why they're useful. One thing that I would like to mention is that there are very few fields, and I know I sort of touched on this a bit, there are few fields in science that actually still tamper with any sort of qualitative work. There's a bit of this still done in sociology and social work and some of the more applied social sciences. Um, there's a bit of this in uh, clinical and counseling psychology and in some psychiatric work, particularly in psychiatric nursing, but I would say in no field beyond nursing is qualitative research as highly regarded and as uh, robustly conducted. In fact, I would say over the last few years that the, some of the most well-conducted qualitative research I've ever reviewed has come from the field of nursing, which is high praise because I work in a lab that does mixed methods research. And so we do a lot of qualitative work. So nurses have historically done a very brilliant job with their qualitative research efforts. And, you know, that's impressive because qualitative work is significantly more difficult than quantitative work. And I mean, this might just be my own personal thoughts on that matter. I mean, clearly that's my, my um, bias. And that's, you know, and I, and I say that because I, I think it's much more ambiguous and interpretive. And yes, you have to interpret your quantitative data. But the act of trying to make clear, concise sense of the innumerable data that you get from qualitative inquiry and, say, semi-structured interview questions are – it is very difficult to do. Um, it takes a lot of working through intercoder or interrater reliability to become um, – to derive a consensus between yourself and your colleagues, because you can't do it all yourself. You know, you have your own value-laden biases that orient you in one direction and maybe steer you away from what the client or patient or individual participant is actually trying to say, while your colleagues might have a different view. And so you sort of all come together to 
describe something that coalesces into its uh, own original sort of hypothesis in a way. And it's it's challenging. Um, it's challenging. It takes a lot of hours. And as I say, it's a, a very ambiguous interpretive process that, you know, there are ways of attempting to make it more clear. And at the end of it, you do, um, usually through some software like in vivo or deduce, you do uh, generate a COAS kappa coefficient, I mean, sorry, a Cohen's kappa coefficient um, for intercoder reliability to make sure that you're all sort of on the same page in your analysis. But it doesn't make, um, it doesn't make it a quantitative approach per se. It just means that whatever hypotheses that you've generated, you've done so in a way that you are consistent and unbiased across individuals, individual coders. Um, all of that is a little bit too more, it's more detailed than I anticipated getting in today's episode. Um, so I'll just stop there with the more detailed stuff and kind of float back to the the sort of broad spectrum perspective, which is sort of why is this important? And I think most people are clear enough on why quantitative work is important from the standpoint of that's what everybody sees. They see the new, shiny, interesting, psychological or medical study that gets published in some pop culture um, mass media outlet. And then, you know, people take those headlines and run with them. And those are all often some correlational study or other, um, or some biomedical intervention that in the end probably ends up being meaningless, um, which is a, a rabbit hole we'll, we'll try to avoid. I'll sidestep that one for now. Um, but the point is, it's so prevalent, these quantitative methods that I so dearly love, I must admit, that they're often um, the only ones that are promulgate, promulgated as being of high quality um, in pop culture. And there's this entire realm of research that very few people actually know about, even among actual, you know, biological scientists or other sort of up-and-coming budding academics. So I would like to spend the majority of this time talking about why qualitative work is actually more important than people give it credit for. So qualitative work is important for a variety of reasons, but it's really important in nailing down themes that are used to explore possible new hypotheses. And those hypotheses can then be used to generate methods to explore quantitative data. And so they sort of lead into one another in a, in a seamless fashion, at least hypothetically. I think that so let me sort of back up and take a, a slight tangent and say one of the reasons that I want to, personally to be a clinical investigator, which means that I want to be both a practicing clinician and also a translational scientist, and uh, my goal is to bridge the gap between research and practice as there's typically a 7 to 11 year gap between when something becomes an evidence-based 
intervention and when it's actually implemented at the patient bedside. Um, my goal is to close that gap as a leader in the field and as an investigator helping along my nurse scientist colleagues. And I have a passion for this. And part of the reason that I have a passion for this is because I firmly believe that although as a PhD level scientist, you can absolutely um, do clinical research in the sense that you can work alongside clinical colleagues to facilitate a research paradigm and even to answer some interesting research questions that are clinical in nature. Um, but there are often a lot of you know, biomedical science PhDs, for, for instance, that have to go off and get additional postdoctoral training in something clinical because they don't have sufficient insight or they have to collaborate with clinical colleagues, which makes the job a little bit more difficult for them in that they have to try to manage more tendrils beyond uh, what would have been the case if it was just them and their research team. And, you know, some people that suits them particularly well. But so the reason that they have to do this involving multiple people, other clinicians, or getting this extra training is because when you're doing research on a clinical issue or in the clinical setting, you really need a sufficient clinical insight to be able to not to be able to answer the question that's not the issue as a scientist if you have the proper methodological training and you're a rigorous and conscientious investigator answering the questions not the hard part the hard part is asking the correct question that's where the crux of the issue is and i'm being a little bit long-winded as tends to happen sometimes but the point i am making is that the reason that I want to be a clinical investigator is because I want to be able to ask the right questions of my data and ask the right hypothetical questions to be able to collect data on in order to do so. And a lot of people are asking questions that are interesting in some respects, but irrelevant in a lot of others. They're often irrelevant to the community of interest, the population that they're trying to serve. Um, which is why user-centered designs are, are critical in this area. And also, if you don't have any clinical experience, it is often difficult for you to know what might be important to try to solve. Or you might get millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on your area, of research funds from, from some federal grant mechanism, and you might be applying it to some question that is otherwise interesting, but really pragmatically not that impactful to the clinical population of interest that you are working on trying to help. But had you had that insight, that experience, you might have known enough to shift your question in just the slightest way. Now, I realize that this is a bit of an oversimplification in the sense that there are um, research scientists with no clinical training that can do this well. Um, and there are also uh, researchers who involve clinicians seamlessly in their work to be able to do this. So I don't mean to overgeneralize, but I will say that my personal experience is that this does not happen enough and that there is a unique perspective that's brought to the table 
when you so have a conversation with an md phd and they will tell you the same thing or uh, a dnp for example who does research or uh, a nurse scientist who by definition is a clinical researcher um, because they are a clinician and they do have experience uh, working with patients there is something unique about the perspective there's a a hermeneutic uh, and pragmatic or phenomenological um, uniqueness to being able to have the kind of clinical insight that one has when they develop as a clinician first and then utilize that experience and that insight to develop the right questions for the population that they're trying to serve. Um, and now the whole reason I bring that up is just to, you know, coming back to this issue of qualitative work is that's why exploratory work is important in research. If you don't ask the right questions, then the data that is purportedly giving you some perspective on a potential answer, that data might be interesting in one way, but it might be irrelevant for the more important question that you could have asked had you had a different kind of insight or experience. I think that the qualitative and exploratory work generates the hypotheses that are worth answering with the quantitative data. I would also say that leveraging the patient's subjective experience is part and parcel with generating those hypotheticals, those hypotheses rather. So I'm going to restate this story that I may or may not have said on the podcast before, but I think it's important and I think she would not mind if I if I if I do so at uh excluding her personal health information of course. Um so I have uh, an individual close to me who has given me permission to share the story devoid of personal um, identifiable details. And I think this is an important um, description of precisely what I am saying about the purpose and importance of qualitative work in healthcare in particular. My so this individual that uh, that comes to mind for me has been dealing with incapacitating migraine headaches for years, and they had only gotten worse into their twenties, late twenties, early thirties, and they got bad enough to the degree that there was this one day where they had to go to the emergency department to be seen because the migraine was bad enough that they were they weren't sure they were even going to be able to drive home and you know if anyone any of you have experienced migraines they can get pretty horrific and this wasn't quite one of those like thunderclap headaches that made somebody immediately go i wonder if this is a subarachnoid or something uh really insidious this was more of a um a, a really severe albeit perhaps typical migraine but that was worrisome enough for this individual that they really felt compelled to get checked out and it turns out that they had a chiari malformation that they never knew of and if you don't know what a chiari malformation is 
Chiari malformation, there are genetic variants of this, but the most common form of this into adulthood, um, it essentially is when the uh, cerebellar tonsils, so, you know, in your brain, you have the uh, cortical tissue and then um, in the uh, posterior, postero inferior aspect, you have the other smaller looking cortex that's called the cerebellum. On the bottom, you have those little tonsils that protrude down and uh, and it almost looks like a butt in a sense, which is a very silly way to think of it, uh, think of it, but it it is sort of a, an intuitive way to think about it. When those tonsils, if they begin to sink down into the vertebral canal and put pressure on the spinal cord, and um, and the, these other structures down near the foramen magnum, this creates a host of problems, one of which is uh, severe um, and persistent migraine-like symptoms. And if you've ever, ever experienced or worked with patients with migraine, migraine can induce all sorts of neurological complications that are beyond just mere head pain. Uh, so this... It's a very it's a significant enough issue that becomes chronic without uh, a surgical intervention, which tends to be a skull base surgery to create space in the opening for those tonsils, so they're not so that there's not as much pressure on the nervous tissue in that area. Again, all of this is a little oversimplified for the sake of the podcast because this episode's not particularly about Chiari malformation per se, but about uh, what I'm going to do with this story momentarily. So needless to say, as the um, researcher in this individual's life, I was contacted by this person to explore what sorts of literature exists on this topic. And at the time, and this was several years ago, so I was... Uh, a budding researcher and uh and I was not intimately familiar with this content I mean I, frankly most people are not there are a handful of Chiari researchers out there several of them several of whom are um neurological surgeons as that's uh a condition that's treated surgically in a lot of cases but one of the things that we found through our um, deep dive into the state of the literature on Chiari malformation and its treatment is that there are tip, what are called typical or atypical headaches in Chiari patients with this particular subtype. And one of the questions I'll never forget, this individual turns to me after reviewing some of the literature with them, and they said, um, so one of the things I brought up with them was that um, the individuals who got the surgical treatment that received the surgical intervention, the skull-based surgery, these people had what amounted, I can't remember the exact number, so I'm just going to say what comes to mind. So forgive me if this is incorrect information at this point in time. But at the time, I think it was something like there was an 84% chance that the the headache that the patient experienced would resolve and not come back. And 
Uh, of course, that means that there's some significant proportion of people who, for whom the headache does come back and some of the symptomatology returns, and that's a whole other, um, other problem or a can of worms. But my – so this individual says to me, you know, how do I know that the patients who they are speaking of who had this recovery, if the headache that they had was similar to the headache that I have, how do I know how to – categorize my headache as typical or atypical. And there are some quantitative ways of of collecting some of those data in a survey style or cross-sectional survey. And I'm sure that those data exist. But providing the kind of thorough descriptive analysis of what of the sort that I was being asked for, I didn't see those data. And the reality was that came flashing forward or flooding forward as I considered this was that the kind of data this individual was asking me for was qualitative data by definition. They were interested in how the patients were reporting their symptomatology and then how those symptoms were collated and how they, uh, how they fared in comparison to hers. Now that is a bit of a it's complex right because well i'll just leave it there because there it's again it's a rabbit hole i'm gonna have to step over but if you have a certain experience as a patient you kind of can't help but wonder if other individuals with a similar condition just because they have the same condition, if their experiences overlap with yours and vice versa. And, I mean, just take something like a traditional migraine. That's not a Chiari-induced migraine, a a sort of uh, traditional migraine with aura, let's say. These migraines, people categorize them in one, um, one category, migraine headache with aura, But yet, there are so many different dimensions to the experience that if there weren't qualitative data on this, it would be very difficult to know how the different subtypes experience and how they fare based on certain treatment styles or treatment approaches, rather. And it would be more difficult for us to know how to implement which treatment or which treatment to implement, rather, in particular cases, based on the way the symptoms are experienced. And now there's an entire field of study, uh, a sub-discipline of nursing, if you will, called symptom science, which is another interest of mine, at least from a methodological standpoint. And it's there's a whole NINR, or uh, National Institute for Nursing Research, initiative to expand clinical symptom science and nursing research there are significant funds allocated to this to this area in particular and this is one of the things that they do they try to tease apart what do we know about symptoms in different areas for different conditions for different people and if we don't at least begin these investigations with a qualitative approach that really collates patient experiences, then we won't be able to 
in my opinion, in my estimation, develop the right hypotheses through which to collect and analyze our quantitative data. So again, I believe these things transition seamlessly. And I think, well, I think I should stop and move on to the next piece because I could probably talk about this for a while longer. I will say too that I began my... um, I began my foray into qualitative work with a fair amount of skepticism. And in some respects, um, retrospectively, I think it was a little, it was certainly naive, but it was a little unfair of me, actually. And now, in hindsight, I'm very glad that I've had the experiences that I've had where I've had the opportunity to work on various mixed methods studies where I've gotten to learn a lot about different types of qualitative research methods, such as grounded theory methodology and things like that, but have have really gotten to see how arduous and rigorous these qualitative um, styles of inquiry, inquiry really are. And also there's a philosophical um, aspect to this too, which may be best suited for another time. So let me move on from here. Um, So just briefly, what are the limitations of the qualitative view? So I've taken this perspective at this point that qualitative research is often undervalued and underutilized in modern or contemporary research methods, and that's true. I also have taken up the contention that there's a sufficient reason to value qualitative work and that it's in its hypothesis generating nature and i believe that that's also true and i maintain these but there are limitations so one of the big limitations that's very important to mention is the generalizability concern suppose that you bring let's say 10 individuals 10 patients in a given area let's say that you are a uh dermatology nurse um, and you you recruit 10 participants 10 patients to give their experiences on um, psoriasis and forgive me if you're a dermatology nurse and you are the expert in this area and I am certainly certainly not but uh, but but so just imagine you have, this study that you're conducting, you recruit 10 patients with pretty serious psoriasis, and let's say it's gutate psoriasis, and uh, and so you have these 10 individuals, you ask them uh, a semi-structured interview and with predominantly open questions, and you analyze these uh, interviews post hoc for themes and you try to exhaust the different themes that you could possibly find and you do a wonderful job let's just say that you do the most thorough rigorous uh robust job that you could possibly do you do it with three different coders and everything's great you have a kappa of like 0.9 so you're 90 percent reliable which never happens but let's just say everything's great um you would still be faced with the concern of generalizability because 
you don't know if the themes that you've exhausted in your work are sufficiently generalizable to the population of interest because you're not sampling a random sample of that population. You're sampling a convenience sample. And furthermore, if you don't get, whether it's a, it's a random sample or not, if you don't get a reliable um, sampling of the population of interest, then you really can't infer what, that what you've found applies to anybody outside of your small population. So you might find something absolutely fascinating that only applies to those 10 individuals. That's a serious limitation. But there's something to be said about the fact that that's not the purpose of qualitative work. The goal is not to take the results you get from a qualitative study and generalize them to the entire population. Your goal is actually to specify, exhaust the themes in your analysis, and then write up how this needs to be tested further. And this, is, I mean, again, it's exploratory and hypothesis generating. Viewed from the hypothesis generating lens, these types of exploratory qualitative analyses are invaluable. But the external validity and generalizability is low, and people are so often quick to jump to, I'm doing the research that I'm doing so that I can make these broad proclamations about society. And that you just have to know what the limitations of your approach are, such that you can conduct your work and um, apply the analyses appropriately. Um, I would say as well that people often overestimate, as I mentioned earlier, the differences between qualitative and quantitative wor work for other reasons. So, um, you know, I mentioned that they each have their limitations, and that's true. Um, however, I would say that the people who, you know, do they talk this big game about uh, internal and external validity and how a quantitative method might give you, if it's done properly, much more external validity in terms of applying your hypothesis or the results of your um, hypothesis testing to the wider population of interest. And, you know, whether or not that is the case clearly depends on several different factors, um, not least of which is the quality of your your data collected and the analyses that you're doing and the appropriateness of the analyses and all of that. Um, but human ethics and human values, subjective values, they permeate everything. They permeate our statistical analyses as well. It's not like because you're looking at numbers that they suddenly are value-free. The value is in what we assign them. So there's always this question implicit, which is, who's doing this assigning? Who's assigning the value? And often, almost invariably, it's the researchers. Now, there are some researchers, like myself, who are interested in user-centered designs and community-based participatory research methods like PAR or CBPR, um, in which case the, the value is derived predominantly from the community of interest, uh, the population of interest, or in some cases, the patient population, depending on how you're, uh, the kind of work that you're doing. 
But there is inherently a value hierarchy in the work that you do. And you can claim objectivity in the numbers, but only insofar as uh, the, the actual numbers themselves are black and white, but the representation, or rather what the numbers re- represent, they have a value. And that value structure is one imposed by the researcher often. So that is a very important thing to know because just just, uh, quantifying something um, doesn't mean that it's inherently value-free or so-called objective. Um, In fact, I'm not convinced from a philosophical vantage point that true objectivity really exists. I think that it's something to aim for. I think it's... Uh, it's a virtue, um, in a sense, but I think that there's something naive about claiming that because you've <laughs> you've applied the facade of a number to something that otherwise has some value structure to us in society, um, I think that that it warrants further exploration, uh, intellectual exploration before jumping to it to such a conclusion um so i mean what's a better solution uh i think that it would be a false dichotomy to make the presumption that you either have to be a qualitative or a quantitative researcher i think a lot of qualitative researchers are quick to jump to the assumption that they can't be a good um, statistician because somehow they have to be a, an amazing mathemat- uh, mathematician. And realistically, nowadays, you have to be more of an, uh, a fabulous computer s- software programmer. Apologies for my computer. And the <laughs> um, my boss just had an appendectomy, so um, our team is texting and making sure she's feeling okay. Um, anyway, uh, the point I am making is that a lot of qualitative researchers are too quick to jump to the assumption that they are unable to understand the mathematics or do the computation necessary to be able to be a, a sufficiently high quality um, quantitative researcher. But I would say often it's because they probably had not so great Uh, statistics teachers or methods instructors and also maybe they just need to do more programming to get better at things like r or sas or other software programs that help with the uh, analyses themselves and i mean realistically if you're good enough at language and understanding language and uh, subjective experience and phenomenology to do qualitative work really the hard part about statistics and methodology is in the interpretation it's knowing how to interpret something like an odds ratio or a hazard ratio or a Pearson correlation coefficient or something uh, something like that. If you know how to interpret what's happening, then running the analyses is actually not particularly difficult. Um, I would say this, the better solution is probably to employ a mixed methods approach where you blend these two seemingly dichotomous approaches, qualitative and quantitative. I would say, finally, again, last time, I promise, I would use qualitative work for exploring potential hypotheses to test later with quantitative studies. 
And then I would leverage the quantitative analyses for rigorously testing those exploratory hypotheses. But in my mind, they are both necessary and they might be both seamless transitions from one to the other. Thank you for listening to Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify. If you'd like to connect with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. I can't always respond to each and every email, but please know that I do read all of them, and I thoroughly enjoy my listeners' feedback and commentary. Finally, I do this show because it helps me learn and hone my intellectual craft. In both my analyses for the show and my discussions of the literature with my listeners, I come to a much deeper understanding than I would have otherwise. I don't do this to pretend to be the expert. I simply intend to learn and to promote this information for other nurses, researchers, and healthcare professionals. And teaching other people helps me to learn more than anything else. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.